Father, uh, as we come this morning, God, uh, we are thankful that we can come before you. And, and Lord, there's, there's people here in this group right here this morning that uh, there's things in our life that hurt us and have hurt us and, and cause us uh, pain and agony uh, emotionally and mentally. Lord, uh, we, we acknowledge those things, but also you're the one, you're the only one that can help us with that and take care of those things. So we say thank you for that. And Lord, uh, help us to look around and see the joy that we have in being your children. And also, God, you have brought us out of the darkness into the light and uh, you've rescued us uh, from what we deserved because your son Jesus took our sins to the cross. So we can be thankful in that. And Lord, also, we can look forward to being in your presence someday. Just this morning, hearing the singing uh, reminds us that uh, what is it going to be like that day in heaven with all the great multitudes singing before you and praising and honoring you? We can just imagine that, Lord, uh, and we have no idea really, but we look forward to it. So we uh, pray that you'll open up our hearts to the message this morning that Phil has from your word and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dean. You know, when we read the words of the Christmas story, usually from the Gospel of Matthew or the Gospel of Luke, it does something to us. It really does. It warms our hearts. It, it stirs our soul. There's just something comforting about those words. And every year at this time when we get to open up our Bibles and hear the Christmas story, we experience those exact same emotions. It's the the same as eating chicken and dumplings at grandma's house. You just feel good when you do it. That's what the Christmas story does for us. So people oftentimes will open up to the Gospel of Matthew and they'll read his account and then they'll believe that they can find additions all through the Gospel. So they, they go to the Gospel of Mark and they're quickly disappointed because Mark really doesn't say anything about the Christmas story per se. It really doesn't. That's all right. That is Peter's account of Jesus's life. Peter met Jesus when he was an adult. So it makes sense that he would just jump right in where he does. Mark's gospel begins with the telling of John the Baptist story. It makes sense when you understand who the author is. But then we get to Luke and there's that same feeling again, another helping of chicken and dumplings from grandma's house. We read Luke's account and our heart is warmed again. Our soul is stirred and, and we're comforted by what we read there. And then for a lot of people, they get to the Gospel of John and they think it's much like Mark's Gospel, that there's no telling of the Christmas story there. But that is so wrong. It is so wrong. John tells the story of Christmas. He just does it from a different perspective. He tells it from the cosmic perspective. A whole lot of what John records for us is mysterious. It really is. But it is also practical. That's why there is so much appeal to his book. In fact, for the majority of people, when they start reading the Bible, they start in the Gospel of John. When they want to meet Jesus, they start in those 21 chapters because the mysterious keeps our attention, but the mystery is solved through the practical aspects of the book. By the time we get to the end of it, we're looking back thinking, I understand now. I know who Jesus is. 
I understand the things that I need to in order to get into a relationship with Him. So when He tells the Christmas story in the first chapter and it comes out almost cryptically, we get lost in it. And we forget that what He's really doing is telling us about the coming of Jesus. Just look at how it starts. If you have a Bible with you, open up to John chapter 1. We're going to spend some time in the first chapter. John chapter 1, fourth book of the New Testament. The apostle starts like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Now right there, we're lost in the cosmic. We're lost in the cryptic. And for some people, that's where they'll bail out of this book, but don't make that mistake. You stay in it. Maybe what could help you is understanding some of the people that he was writing to. John is a little bit different than the other Gospel writers because he was writing to the Jews and the Gentiles. A lot of times he would translate Jewish terminology for us so that as Gentiles we can understand what's going on. But then he would also speak directly to the Jewish people in their background. Just Six chapters in, six different times, he will show how Jesus is fulfilled prophecy so that the Jews could understand who Jesus was as well. Just six chapters in, six times, you find him speaking to their heritage. Here they are. You can take a look for yourself. In his gospel, Jesus is the Lamb of God, the ladder from heaven, the new temple, the means to being born again, the serpent that is lifted up, and Jesus is the bread of God. That's how John writes about him to his Jewish audience. To the Gentiles, he writes a little different. Let's just look at how he starts again. Verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. When John uses the word word, He is speaking of Jesus. So we can plug Jesus' name into that. Listen to it again in that light. In the beginning was Jesus. And Jesus was with God and Jesus was God. That's deep teaching. That's Trinity teaching right there. He was in the beginning with God, meaning Jesus was. All things were made through Him and without Him was not anything made that was made. He's talking about Jesus. He's telling us about who He was and who He is and who He will become. The fact that He is coming back for us. Now let's go on through the first chapter and just listen to how John tells the story. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through Him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own people and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will, but of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, 
This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. There's the Christmas story. Now there are some things that fall out of that story that fill in blanks in Matthew and Luke's telling. These things that come out of there help us understand at a deeper level what Matthew and Luke were communicating. There's at least seven of them that fall right off the page as we study John's telling of the Christmas story. And all of them, all of them, every one of them is extremely significant. Maybe you were grabbing hold of some of them, but if not, let me show them to you as we go through this. Take a look. Here's number one. Christmas is really about eternity, not just Bethlehem. Now that was captured in those first two verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus predates the marking of time. In the beginning means before we ever started measuring time. Jesus was there before there were oceans. Jesus was there before there was land. Jesus was there before there was light and darkness. Jesus predates time. He was with God in the beginning. That is very significant. We have to hold on to it. That's Trinity teaching once again. That's the deep stuff of the New Testament. Then pay attention to this one. Number two, most people were either unaware of His coming or simply rejected Him. Let's take a look again at verses 10 and 11. He was in the world and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own and His own people did not receive Him. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the Bible will tell us, John will tell us, Matthew will tell us that the entire area of Judea, including Jerusalem, was troubled. They were troubled by His presence, by His coming. And they were only five miles away, just Five miles. That's how far it is from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. Five miles. And according to what we read in the Bible, nobody went to see Him. If they were that troubled by Him, why why wouldn't they go see Him? Because they didn't care? Because they were apathetic, maybe? Because it just didn't matter to them? And for many of them, they just rejected the whole idea of Jesus. It is still that way. He is so close to us and people won't make the steps to go see Him. And for others, they just reject Him all the way around. So they keep Him at arm's length. It's still going on. Take a look at number three. Christmas is ultimately about Jesus' power to give a new birth to anyone that receives Him as Lord. Verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. There's a great theologian that would say it this way. The Son of God became a man so that men could become the sons of God. That's a great way of looking at it. That is a theological way of looking at it. God took on flesh so that we could know Him. And that's what that's all about. And John's filling in the blanks for us. He's helping us understand that. Matthew and Luke do an adequate job of that as well. They do a wonderful job of it. John just points it out so that we can't miss it. Take a look at number four. 
The Christmas story is about grace and truth. Chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We'll come back to that. Here's number five. Without Easter, Christmas is meaningless. Now let's fast forward. We haven't read this verse yet, so we'll go all the way up here to verse 29. Listen to what John writes. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is an Easter message. Now you have to hold on to this. Without Christmas, Easter would have never happened. Without Easter, Christmas would be pointless. So Christmas, the entire story that makes us feel so good, is leading to the cross. And the cross is leading to the empty tomb. And you have to have all of those. You have to have the birth of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. And then you have all of those promises fulfilled in Him. You cannot have Christmas without Easter. And my friends, you cannot have Easter without Christmas. They are indelibly linked. Now take a look at number six, though. Christmas carries the promise of heaven's open doors. John chapter 1, verses 49 through 50. For people that understand this, we receive more than just salvation. We get the privilege of receiving every good thing that heaven has for us. This is verse 49. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. When a person becomes a believer, we see the saving power of Jesus Christ. As we grow in discipleship, we see the doors of heaven opened for us and the blessings of God, the goodness of God poured out in our lives. And we get to pick all of that up. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. I'm glad that John puts that in his Christmas account so that we understand what is available to us through the gifts of Christmas. Number seven, though makes a bit of a shift. Take a look. Christmas has been under attack since its inception. But Jesus' is coming prevailed, and so does His message. Let's backtrack to verses 4 and 5. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is a part of the Christmas story that we would rather avoid. Even when we read out of Matthew and Luke's gospel accounts of it, when we sit down and we receive that chicken and dumpling feeling, we try to avoid this part. As we go through the gospel of John and the first six things fall out for us, it's like putting butter on the biscuits at grandma's house. It's just good. It's comforting. It's warm. It's wonderful. And then we come to number seven, and that's like grandma taking the, the chicken and dumplings and the buttered biscuits away from us and replacing it with broccoli. Nobody wants it. It's nasty. It's horrible. It's vile. Nobody wants it. And so now we have this big plate of broccoli in front of us and we're not sure what to do with it. So we just try to avoid it. We try to get away from it. We try to ignore it. We, at some level, believe that it's not even there. And that makes us feel a little bit better. But all through the Christmas story, we see the truth of this. Christmas has been under attack since its inception. But Jesus is coming prevailed, and so does His message. Let me take you back into the familiar to show you what we're talking about. Matthew chapter 2. Now we're going to see some of the 
comforting parts of the Christmas story right here, starting in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. There it is. All Jerusalem was troubled with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what times the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now that's how you see number seven coming to light. That's how you see the truth of it. From its inception, Christmas has been under attack. And it's happened through a number of different ways. But within the Christmas story, we see at least two villains. The first one out of Matthew's Gospel is Herod. And we have to wonder why Herod was so threatened by Jesus. He was a baby. What was it that had him so upset? Well, there's a few different things. Number one, Herod was upset because he was called a king. The wise men said the king of the Jews. And he didn't like that because that was his title. But you have to understand, Herod's title of king is really kind of a joke because Caesar Augustus and Rome oversaw all of the land of Israel and Judea. All of that was under Roman control. Caesar was the king. He was the emperor. Herod was the son of the governor before him. His father had been watching over that land. But Herod the Great was friends with Mark Antony. Mark Antony was friends with Caesar Augusta. So there's a group of historians that tell the story this way. Herod said to Mark Antony, Hey, you think maybe you could talk to Caesar and see if I could be called king of Israel? And Antony said, Let me see what I can do. 
So he went to Caesar, told Caesar what Herod was thinking, and this is Phil's paraphrase of how it all played out. Caesar looks back at Antony and says, you know what, if he wants to be called the king of Israel, go crazy. It doesn't matter. Have the plaque made. He can put it on his door. I don't care because I really don't care about Israel and Judea. I don't really want to go there because those people are not Roman and I I just don't care. Don't give a second thought. So let him call himself king. So Herod did. Called himself king. That Okay. It really meant nothing because he was still under Caesar's rule and under his authority. But he made the most out of the title. So now all of a sudden, there's this baby that people are calling the king of the Jews, and that is a threat to his false throne. But it was also a threat to his religion. Because you see, Herod practiced Judaism, but he was not a natural-born Jew. He was a proselyte Jew. And because he was not a natural-born Jew, he had no claim to the throne. And if this baby is being called the king of the Jews and he is of Jewish descent and birth and is naturally born, he has a stronger claim to the throne than Herod did. So Herod was upset. Herod didn't like it. But here's the third reason that this was so insulting to him. It has to do with Herod's heritage. You see, he was an Edomite. The Edomites were descendants of Esau. Esau married a Arab woman, and the Edomites came as a result of that union. Therefore, there was no claim to the throne. It was impossible. And so if this was truly a king of the Jews, his lineage would speak of it. Jesus' lineage would be that of the line of David, which ultimately would be the line of Jacob. And if you were with us this fall as we were going through a sermon series that we titled In God's Camp, then you'll remember that Jacob and Esau were brothers. And Jacob had stolen Esau's birthright and his blessing. And it had upset Esau to the point that when their father died, Esau made this statement, when the time of mourning is over, I will kill my brother. And Jacob went on the run, and for 20 years they were separated from one another until God prompted Jacob to go back and reconcile the relationship, and they saw each other, but then they parted company again. God would actually say in the Old Testament that the Israelites were not to war against the Edomites, but do you know what the Israelites did in the Old Testament? They warred against the Edomites. They went to fight with them. They went to battle with them, and that raged all these years. And here we are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later, and we have one of the descendants of Esau sitting on a false throne saying, if that is a son of Jacob, he will not get this throne. He cannot have this throne. So he sought out the babies, and he was a a murderous... I don't even know how to say it. That's who he was. His character started to shine through. So he hunted down those babies. When we read that story, we tend to inflate it, believing that thousands of babies were killed, but it doesn't matter how many were. If one baby was killed in this hunt, it was heinous. It was terrible. Tradition says that about 20 would have been. Bethlehem was a very small area. So about 20 babies were killed because Herod couldn't move past any of those things. He becomes villain number one. But villain number two far surpasses him. Herod was actually controlled by him. It's the devil. That was Satan. 
We know from John chapter 1, verse 4, that there is a darkness that has come into the world. Listen to it again. This is John's telling of this. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The one behind all of that darkness was Satan, the devil, Lucifer, whatever you want to call him. And he was the one controlling the actions of Herod. Make no mistake about that. He was the one controlling the actions behind Herod. It's because of him that darkness settled over the entire region. It's because of him that these battles raged the way they did. That's, that's why they were there. And that's part of what John helps us understand, the cosmic side of this. And the question that we have to ask, even before we see that, is what is it that Satan was attacking? Was he attacking Jesus' claim to the throne? Or was he attacking Jesus himself? I would offer to you that it's the latter because there was a lot of history between the two of them, between Lucifer and Jesus. Because you remember, Jesus was there from the very beginning. He was there with God before time ever started. He was always there. That means that He was there when Lucifer was created. And He was there when Lucifer was cast out of heaven. They have a lot of history with one another. So He was attacking not just the claim to the throne, but the person of Jesus. I want you to see how extreme that is. So we're going to go to Revelation chapter 12. The Apostle John is also the author of the book of Revelation. In its official name, it is known as the Revelation of Jesus Christ. In the 12th chapter, he writes some things that are startling. Verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. And he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come back down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent 
poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. That's why Satan was so upset. Because Jesus' coming was going to bring mankind this relationship with God. And at the exact same time, it was going to start a ticking clock on him. And he's read the end of the book. He knows how it ends. So Satan was going to do everything possible to try to prevent the birth of Jesus. He was going to do everything he could to prevent God coming to the earth. And when he was unsuccessful, he has spent all of his time since trying to keep us from coming to Jesus. That's still what he's doing. And that's the darkness. The darkness that settles over the earth that the light that is Jesus illuminates is a darkness that is placed there because the prince of darkness he is called in the Bible wants it to be that way so that we can't see God. We can't see who He is and we can't have a relationship with Him. So He works harder than you can imagine to keep us stuck in the darkness. And when we get out into the light, He pulls us back into it and does everything He can to keep us stuck right there. This is a demonic issue. It is a satanic issue. And like I say, when it comes to the Christmas story, we don't like this part of it. So we just try to move past it. And that can be its own mistake. I like the way C.S. Lewis says this. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. Oh, we have to pay attention. Don't ignore what the enemy is doing. But don't give him too much credit either because the darkness has been defeated by the light. The victory is there for us. We already know that because of Jesus. But the darkness is still here. And we still have to deal with it. Well, that leads the way then for this question. What what was it that Satan hated so much? It's Jesus. But what was it about what he was going to bring to the earth that he hated so much? Was it just the ticking clock that would end in his demise and him being sent into the lake of fire? Or was it something more? I think it was something more. Let's go back to John chapter 1. Take a look again at verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 16. From His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Grace and truth. That's what He hates. That's just what He hates. Those are the two great presents of Christmas. Grace and truth. So let's take a look at both of them. It won't take very long. Let's start with grace. We have talked about grace over and over and over again. We'll keep talking about grace because it is the great gift of God poured out on mankind. The grace that we're talking about in this situation was a righteous, God-exalting, costly grace that would send Jesus to the cross. He had to become flesh to become the sacrifice required for our sins. 
That's the cost of it. Remember, it, it links us to Easter. That's the cost of this grace. The writer of Hebrews would say it like this in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's the grace side of this. God became man so that he could become the sacrifice required for our sins. To give us not only salvation, but mercy. To open up the heavens and pour out all of his goodness on us. That's grace. Costly grace. But then there's the truth side of it. Jesus came to the earth full of grace and truth. And if we were to ask everybody in this room, there's, I don't know, 250 people in here. 275 people, if we were to ask everybody what the truth was, they're going to throw out all kinds of different answers. We might get 250 different answers. We might have some people that would just stare at us blankly. So 200 answers. But everybody's got this different idea of what truth might be. As I explore it, I find it to be the truth of God Himself. He is true to Himself. Because the Bible teaches us that blood is required for the forgiveness of our sins. All the way back in the Old Testament we learned that. In Hebrews chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews explains that very thing to us. But the blood of bulls and goats didn't do it. The Old Testament system of sacrifice didn't do it. So a different sacrifice was needed. And God said, I will become that. And He sent His Son to take on human form to become the sacrifice on the cross. And listen to what the Bible says about it. This is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. God was true to Himself and Jesus was the only sacrifice required once for all. So back in John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, John says, In Him was life and the life was the light of men, full of grace and truth. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness is not over." Comment. Grace and truth have not been overshadowed by the darkness. We just have to trust it. We just have to trust it. Romans chapter 8 has the Apostle Paul saying this, and this is a great promise. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Jesus Christ, the victory is already ours. In Jesus Christ, we've already won. The light is shining bright and the darkness has not overcome it. Do you hear that? The darkness has not overcome it. No matter how dark it may be around you right now, the victory is there. The light is there. The victory is already yours. You cannot be separated from the love of God. You cannot be separated from the love of God. And some of you might say, but I feel like I am. I feel like the darkness is too much. I feel like I can't see. You might even go on to say, and you don't understand that because you're a preacher. You don't understand that because you're a minister. You don't deal with the same things that I deal with. Well, let me tell you, that's not true. Ministers, preachers, elders, teachers, they all deal with the same darkness. The darkness tries to overcome us the same way it tries to overcome you. We have to be reminded of the same things that everybody has to be reminded of because our struggle is no different than your struggle. 
this fall, I've been dealing with that very thing. There's been some pretty vicious attacks leveled my way, and the darkness that came with it has been, it's been extreme. That's the best way to say it. It's just been extreme. The darkness that has surrounded me personally in the midst of it has been extreme. The only way that I can describe it is this way. It has felt to me like the enemy was standing on my neck. And in the worst of it, I, I wasn't sure I was going to get out from underneath that. But there were a couple of things that helped, that reminded me of the light that shines in Jesus Christ. The light that will always beat the darkness. The first came through the prayers of godly people. I have learned more about intercessory prayer this fall than I have ever known in my life because people were interceding for me in powerful ways, powerful ways. And then a song was sent to me on a Saturday night right after things were at their worst, when the darkness was at its worst and I had to preach on Sunday morning and I wasn't sure how I was going to do it. Quite honestly, I wasn't sure I could do it. And as those folks were praying, God sent this song and it spoke volumes to me, reminded me of a couple very important things. We'll share it with you right now. Since God will be my shepherd, oh, I won't need a thing. He leads the way before me, restores my soul to sing. You lift my head from sorrow and turn my mourning into joy so I won't fear what evil brings for you are with me and you you 
song reminded me of a couple things. I will not fear what evil brings because God is with me. Because God is with me. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And then I was reminded of the power of the church and came on Sunday morning ready to preach because of the prayers and because of God's gift through casting crowns in that psalm. I had never heard it before. heard it for the first time that night. God gave the gift. And I was encouraged, built back up by the hearts of those that I worship with, the church. It's the power of it. That's the gift of it. I was reminded of this from Matthew chapter 12, verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me. These are Jesus' words. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. But those that are with God, those that are with Jesus, have him on our side. We have him on our side And that's why the victory is ours. That's why God's already granted it. So I will not fear what evil brings because the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. You may have some darkness that surrounds you right now. I want you to know that the prayers of God's children can pray it away and they can get you through it. And I want you to know that the encouragement of the church is there for you. You're at home in the house of the Lord with His people. So we want to offer an invitation to you. You can go over to this door, my right, your left, and there'll be people there that will pray with you in the midst of the darkness. If you need help and hope, respond to the invitation. It's powerful. It is powerful. Ray is one of the people, along with the other elders, that was praying for me during that time and continued to. And so I want you to hear his prayer this morning. Ray? Father, as we reflect in our lives right now, we are, there are times in our lives when we feel like Satan is stepping right on our necks and our throats, and he wants to take us out. And uh, we know that if we give up and we let him win, then life is futile. But we know we have victory because we know what the end of the story is. And we know, Lord, that uh, as we come to you in prayer, not only on our knees ourselves, but we come to you in prayer with the group, with other people that pray with us, pray for us. We know, Lord, that as we open up the Bibles and read your word, it gives us hope. We know that Satan runs from all that. He has no chance because we know the end of the story. Lord, right now people may be struggling with things in their lives that uh, they have to deal with. Things that are physical, things that are emotional, financial, uh, and lots of people are struggling with things spiritually. Father, we know that uh, we can come to this place, this house of God, and we can find rest. And we don't uh, uh, fear what evil brings in our lives because we know that you are the light. We thank you, Father, that you are that light. This morning we pray that if there's somebody right now that is struggling for that, through all the things in their lives, that they turn them loose and let you uh, 
release them from that. Let you uh, do the work that you do and they can find peace and hope and they can be the light of the world. There's so much darkness and we can be the light that shines and bring light to people. So Father, we just pray that uh, this morning we're going to offer up a song. We're going to sing to you. We're going to praise you. And we just pray, Lord, that people respond because we know that uh, um, just give them no fear to step out and say, I need somebody to pray with me or I need somebody to pray for me or I need to pray for somebody else. But I just pray, Lord, that uh, that happens this morning and they're not afraid because we don't fear what evil brings. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.